And then we're going to uh, jump into the word of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the promises that are found in it. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we break open your word. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would use the word to, Lord, to convict and to change us, to mold us into the image of Christ, your son. And Father, we're thankful for the confidence that the word of God can give us and the truth that we find in it. Father, I pray that you would help me to deliver that truth, Lord, and be used um, by the uh, Holy Spirit to be able to uh, uh, bring about that change that is needed uh, maybe in someone's life tonight. Father, I pray that you would hide me, Lord, behind the cross and that your word would be preeminent tonight as we study it. We're thankful for our church, Lord, and our church family, and for the sweet time we have to not only study the word of God, but to pray for one another. And we ask your blessings upon this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a copy of the word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of John, chapter 8 tonight. Thank you, Brother Jim. John chapter 8, we're going to begin a new series we call Confident in the Face of Hard Questions. Confident in the Face of Hard Questions. And through this series, it'll be a little bit more apologetic in nature that by way of uh, helping equip the saints to be able to have an answer for the hope that lies within us. You know, the internet can be uh, a scary place at times, but can also be a funny place at times. Um, It's kind of a a stage where um, the... uh, the, the faults, the, uh, the fun, and the, to be, to, for lack of a better word, the stupidity of mankind is put on full display for everyone to see. Um, and there's usually a never-ending lineup of people making fools of themselves on the internet. Um, I was scrolling through the internet the other day and came across uh, this thread. Uh, this is a great example of, of confidence, uh, in, uh, self-confidence. A man writes, no English word uh, has a double... Double, Z, uh, double O, except for the word food. Prove me wrong, the person says. And then someone responds to them in writing this. This is proof that preschool education is important in childhood and that choosing the right books and tools to learn is more important than Nollywood. For now, get a stool, go back to the classroom, and learn some coordination. Don't be a hooligan. If you count, there are several words in there with double O's. You know, there seems to be no lack of confidence in our modern culture uh, in things, but there often seems to be a hilarious lack of wisdom in our culture when it comes to people having confidence in the right things. See, confidence is usually never much in short order, but wisdom and confidence in the right things tends to be something that is missing a lot. And as we start this new series, um, Confident in the Face of Hard Questions, what I hope to be able to help accomplish you tonight and as pastor and, and, and others begin to um, break open the series and the word of God with us tonight, I hope that we're able to kind of have some answers and walk away with some practical answers to some hard questions that are, that are that are asked in our culture. Tonight's hard question we're going to look at is the question, does it really matter what truth I believe? Does it really matter what truth I believe? We live in a, a, um, a modern, a post-Christian culture, a secular culture, but for the most part, people have things that they believe. And a lot of times people wonder, well, is it, is it right to just believe something? I believe something, you believe something, so does it really matter what truth I believe? And a lot of times people equate truths to each other. 
Um, And what I want us to be able to look at from the word of God and from the lips of Jesus tonight is that it does really matter what truth you believe. Because the truth that you believe often has an effect on how you live. And tonight we're going to look at really three effects that truth and the, how you, what, what, you, what truth you believe matters and how it affects our lives in three different ways. So if you open up the scriptures tonight, we're going to be in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Here's what the scripture says. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be of Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free. Ye shall be free indeed. We don't have a a, a thing to take notes tonight, but if you want to take notes, um, the first thing we're going to look at, the first way uh, that what the truth that you believe matters and how it affects your life is that the truth that you believe, how it affects your life is that it directs your life. The first few verses here in uh, this passage tonight help indicate this truth. Verses 31 and 32, to reread it, says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believe on him, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, Jesus here speaks to a crowd of Jews who are said to have believed on him. If you look above in, the verse, in verse 30, it says he spake these words, and many believed on him. Verse 31 says that these are Jews which believed on him. Now, it's interesting to note here that this phrase is kind of common in the book of John when it comes to these, some groups of Jews who hear his teachings and then they are referred to as Jews who believe on him. But usually this phrase, believe on him, is associated with those who, are, um, who come to faith in word only. Their faith doesn't really last, to put it that way. John chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, the scripture says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles that which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Jesus knew what kind of belief these men had. John chapter 7, uh, just a chapter before our text here, says, And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Verse 32 says that the Pharisees heard the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take them. This here is referring to their belief being nothing more than just a murmuring. John chapter 12, in verses 42 and 43, the scripture says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men, more than the praise of God. So oftentimes in the book of John, this idea of believing on him by groups of Jews generally isn't a saving faith, I would say. It's more of a faith in 
oh, I, I think he is who he is, and it seems like he is, so perhaps we can have faith in him. Perhaps their faith was real. It's hard to know. I can't be the judge of that, and I don't try to be, but I can't read anyone's heart. But it would suggest, at very least, that the people here who are believing on him must need some further instruction, and the further instruction is precisely what Jesus is going to provide for them here in this passage. Jesus continues to say to this group of people who believe on him, if you continue in my word. Here, this verb that he uses, continue, is the idea, and it takes up, it has the sense of taking up residence in, or to dwell in, or to abide. In a figurative sense, it means to make one, uh, to make it one's own. It's the idea of being unified with something. Now, Jesus is saying, if you're continuing in what? Well, continuing in my Word. The word here, logos, is used many times in John, specifically in John chapter 1, which conveys the personal wisdom and power of God through his divine instruction, which is revealed and personified in the person of Jesus. So Jesus here says he equates one abiding in the wisdom and power of God revealed to us through Jesus as the same as being his disciple. He says here, if you continue if you dwell, if you abide in the teaching, the revelation of Jesus personified in his own self, then, he says, you'll be disciples indeed. It would seem to me to indicate that even Jesus may be called into question what kind of faith they had because he quantifies their faith in them not just saying they believe but proving it by doing something with the faith that they have. And the reason why this is important, the reason for Jesus uh, to even in, include this in his teaching, I believe, is because what truth you believe matters, because it directs the way that you live. Jesus says, if you're going to believe something, it needs to show up in how you live. And if you're going to believe something, whatever truth it is you're going to believe, it's going to direct how you live. So Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you're going to be my disciple. What you believe directs the way that you live. It's going to have, uh, it's going to come out. It's not just going to be this internal faith, it's going to be an external faith that will be able to be viewed by others. Um, came across a story one time of a guy who was lost in the desert, and the sun was pounding down on him. He had been traveling through the desert. He was ill-prepared for this adventure. There was no place to find rest from the sun. He didn't bring a canteen with him. And as he's uh, becoming very parched and he's beginning to uh, faint from his traveling, he happened upon this old rusty pump that was alongside of the road. And next to the pump was this rolled-up script of paper. And on the paper, as he rolled it open, it read this, Dear friend, the pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer in it, and it should last for at least five years. But the washer dries out, and the pump has to be primed. So under the white rock to the north, I've buried a bottle of water, out of the sun and corked up. There's enough water for the bottle to prime the pump, but if you take a drink first, there won't be. Pour about one-fourth of the water and let, the, let it soak the leather washer. Then pour the rest medium-fast and pump like crazy. You'll get water. 
This well has never run dry. Have some faith. Then, when you've pumped all the water you need, fill the bottle, put it back where you found it for the next feller who travels. Signed, Desert Pete. That man had a choice. Would he drink the water or would he pump, pour it into the, the well and pump it out? Well, if you've ever used one of those old pumps, sometimes you do have to prime the pump. But once you do, you get all the water that you need. But there had to be a measure of faith. And that faith had to be demonstrated by not drinking the water outright, but pouring it into the pump, which then would produce what he needed. Because the truth that you believe matters because it directs the way that you live. See, we live in a secular age of faith. And in our secular age, oftentimes it's touted that your faith is a, is a personal faith. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a private thing. You can keep it to yourself, uh, and you can have that, but I think you, you cross a line somewhere if you, if you were to demonstrate or share it with other people. That's kind of the, the spirit of our age when it comes to faith. But even Christians, I think, are tempted to live somewhat in that, that, that nebulous of, of personal and private faith. We think that if we just live in the dark recess of our faith world and we're just quiet and we go to church and, and we just have our personal faith in Jesus, that, that that's how God wants us to live. But I love how one pastor from New York put it. He said, Jesus isn't just the Lord of your heart. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. So your faith must be demonstrated publicly, not just privately. Because that's God's instruction. It isn't just enough to have this personal faith in Jesus and he's in my heart and he's just my private God over here in my corner of the world. That's not what a disciple of Jesus looks like. Jesus says you have to continue in my word. You have to abide in it and you will become my disciple. Jesus' instructions are not just personal instructions that can change your private center of life. His instructions are instructions for us to go and tell, to do likewise, to bear each other's burdens. And so the list goes on and on. It's not just a private faith, it's a public faith. And that faith is informed in the truth that you believe. Because the truth you believe matters. Because it directs the way that you live. Jesus introduces the effect of what living out and living the word of God and the truth of Jesus will do. Look what he says in verse 32. If you're his disciples, 32, it says, you'll know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Jesus here equates truth with freedom. But I'll be honest, I don't believe that what Jesus is trying to communicate here is that it's some kind of national freedom. I don't believe that this is a, 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 a uh, instruction on how to have a free country. That may be a, a, a less popular opinion, but I'll explain a little bit why I believe that in a moment. I think what Jesus here is trying to get at is not a, a, a practical uh, how-to guide of how to build a country, but rather he's trying to tell us something spiritual. So, does truth matter? Does it matter what truth I believe? Yes, it matters because the truth you believe directs the way that you live. Second thought is that the reason why the truth you believe matters is because it informs your thoughts. 
It informs your thoughts. Look on in verse 33. Verse 33, Jesus continues to talk to these group of Jews, and he says, they answered him. These people are answering him now. We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now these group of Jews who believed on him, they're listening to Jesus. And as Jesus begins to elaborate on freedom, truth, making one free, they begin to take issue with how Jesus begins to talk to them. And they respond with a statement that is not actually factually true, but is understood culturally in their culture and in their time to be true. Now let me explain what I mean by that. They say, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. Now let's examine that statement for a second. We be Abraham's seed. Are they? Are the Jews of Abraham's seed? Yes, yeah, so there's nothing wrong with that particular point that they make. They are of Abraham's seed. Now, John the Baptist pointedly said to them as he was preaching to them, don't let that make, don't let that make you have a big head. God is able to raise up a seed out of stones, right? So don't let that get to your head, Jews. That's what John is trying to communicate. So there's nothing in necessarily inherent wrong with their, their thought there. They are of Abraham's seed. Yes, they were. They say, we're never in bondage to any man. Is that part true? No. How so? Yeah, absolutely. So the Jews had been in bondage in Egypt, right? Remember Exodus, the whole account where they're pounding away at Pharaoh's command. They're trying to make bricks without straw. They're toiling under their taskmasters. They're slaves in the land of Egypt. But as you continue out throughout history, they continue to be slaves from time to time. God brings them into a land. They have kings, right? But they begin to err. They begin to follow after pagan gods. They begin to break the covenant. And who comes in? Well, off, just off the, off the cuff, Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, if you recall, he comes in, wipes out them. They, they are pulled into exile, right? If you recall, uh, da uh, Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, Azariah, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? The Hebrew children. Um, Nehemiah, if you recall, he's the cupbearer to not the Babylonian king, but the next one that they become servants to, Persia, right? And so they're slaves not just to Egypt, they're slaves to Babylon, then they're slaves to Persia as the Medes and Persians come in and destroy the Babylonian kingdoms. Continue on through that. Who else becomes their master? So if you know history, the Greek Empire, Alexander, right, rolls on through the Middle East and takes over their country once again. They're servants to the Greek Empire. And now, in Jesus' time, they're servants to who? Rome, right? There's something not quite factual about what they say well, we've never been servants to ever, anyone. What are you talking about freedom? We, we're never, we've never been servants. Now, it's not a factual statement, but in their minds, it is. And the reason why that is, is because they had a teaching among their Jewish uh, rabbis. This kind of idea of being free 
was sort of a hopeful arrogancy in what it meant to be a Jew. If you read history, the leading rabbi named Rabbi Akiva, who was the leading contributor to the Mishnah, which is the Hebrew commentary on the Old Testament, he's quoted to say this, even the poorest in Israel is looked upon as free men who have, lo- who have lost their possessions, for they are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, their idea came from this, un- this belief that free sons of Abraham are those who've never inwardly bowed the knee to a foreign power. So they had this belief culturally that although they may be uh, occupied by the Greeks and occupied by the Romans, if they don't bow their knee to Caesar or to some uh, Gentile king, then they are free people. So this is kind of where they are culturally. So when Jesus says, you'll know the truth and it'll make you free, they take issue with that. Wait a minute, Jesus. We've never bowed the knee to Caesar. We've never bowed the knee to Gentile kings. We are free. So they ask the question, right, in verse 33. If we've never been to bondage to any man, how sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Well, Jesus goes straight to the point in verse 34. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is servant to sin. Jesus goes straight to the point here. Foreign rule isn't the problem. Sin's the problem. Jesus uses this word servant. It's translated servant in our, in our, in our text. The Greek word is doulos, which means literally slave. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Paul writes, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey? His servants are ye to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. The problem for these Jews is the same for every person that has lived, that sin carries wages. According to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, those wages are death. And Jesus is giving them here the indication that although they might feel free, although they might take pride in that they're God's chosen people and that they've never bowed the knee to a foreign power, they are free within themselves, Jesus points out, you are not free. Because if you have sinned, you have fallen short of God's glory, and those wages of sin that carries is death. You might feel free, but you're actually slaves, Jesus says. And the reason why there's such a disconnect is because of what they believed. And that's the point I'm trying to make. That it does matter what truth you believe. Because the truth that you believe informs how you think. These Jews believe the truth. We've never bowed the knee to a foreign power, so we are free. Jesus says, let me me poke into that thought a little bit. If you've sinned, you're not free. You're the servant. You're the slave of sin. And it is inherent that slaves are not free. 
Jesus says here in verse 21, if you go back a few, a few uh, uh, verses, in verse 21, Jesus is speaking to this same group of people. Jesus points out, then said Jesus again unto them, verse 21, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. Jesus is trying to communicate to them that the need for freedom is not a national problem. It's a spiritual problem. And it's a problem that's not just in their nation, but it's a, it's a global problem. For anyone who has sinned is slave to sin. What's interesting, I was reading an article today, and it was talking a little bit about... Um, the expeditions in the early seven, uh, 1790s. People were doing expeditions around and um, traveling all over by ship, and they were discovering you know, uh, the last discoverable parts of the world, and they would um, oftentimes collect specimens and bring them back. And, of course, England had a lot of power in the ocean at that time, and, and there was a, a person who went to Australia, and as they were going through the Australian outback and, and the jungles there, they came across the platypus. And it was something that had never seen before. And so they bring back a specimen. Of course, they had drawings back then. They bring it back to the scientific community uh, in, in Britain. And as they begin to present this uh, animal that looked like a cat but had webbed feet like a duck and had a bill like a duck and it had uh, a tail like a beaver they began to ridicule and mock this guy. And for almost a decade, as people began, reports kept coming back of this, this animal, no one would believe them. In fact, this became so much of a laughingstock in the English scientific community, and people thought it was so much of a hoax that a guy who was alive at that time, his name was P.T. Barnum. You might recognize him from the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He put an ad out for his crazy menagerie of animals and people. Um, and There's a copy of it here I can show you. But if you notice up there, when, in between Egyptian mummies and mermaids is the duck-bill platypus, connecting the link between bird and beast. Even he began to jump on this train that these platypuses, this is a hoax. It's a, it's a bunch of hooey, right? They couldn't believe that something like this could exist. And it took almost a decade to, to, to um, change the minds of this scientific community in Australia. But as specimens began to return, as they began to dissect those specimens and found that it wasn't some elaborate hoax, they... They, in fact, they were actually trying to dissect it and try to find like the stitch marks and they couldn't find it. And they finally, they, they relented. This must be a true animal. But in spite of all the evidence, in spite of all the samples that were brought back for over a decade and the drawings and, and the, the testimonies of people over and over and over again, in spite of all the evidence, the scientific community didn't want to believe it. So they did it. That's how powerful the truth that you believe is. If you've decided in your heart that you believe a truth, it will inform the way that you think. So much so that it can even corrupt the way that you think. Blocking out even the most believable thing. Even if you show them, even if people are showing you evidence, I don't want to believe that. 
Jesus kind of mentioned this a little bit in the parable that he gives of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man who lifts his eyes up in torment says to God, please send somebody, right, to tell my family. I don't want them to come. And Jesus pointedly says, if I brought somebody back from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. They have Moses, they have the process, let them believe them. What's he trying to point to? He's trying to point to the reality of that, how important the truth that we believe is. Because if you believe something, it informs the way that you think. So much so that it can blind you to the truth. I'm so thankful that we have the word of God. That is the truth. More on that to come. If you're taking notes, the third reason why the truth you believe matters is because the truth you believe selects your destiny. It selects your destiny. Look on in verse 35 and 36. Jesus is going to open up to a little bit of a parable, a mini parable, if you will, and he's going to give us more insight into what he's already told these Jews. Verse 35, Jesus says, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son shall therefore make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Jesus illustrates his final principle to these group of Jews about the truth that they believe in this little mini parable of the slave and the son. It's hard for us to kind of think through slaves in our culture today, but before they became this inflammatory thing that you can't really bring up in public anymore, slavery was a very common element in the world from the very beginning of time. It was common all across the world, not just in the West. And it was very common for people that when it came to slavery, slaves were purchased after they were captured in warfare, but they were often owned like property. So it would become part of, they would become part of someone's estate, part of their wealth. And oftentimes they would be transferable or used as capital. In the culture that Jesus was ministering in, the Greco-Roman Empire here, where Jesus said slaves were, were often not just people who were captives, but sometimes they were volunteers. People would volunteer themselves to be a slave to work off debt, and then therefore earn their freedom through working off their debts. And while slaves appear in the Bible... Among both the Old Testament and New Testament passages, I can tell you today that the Bible never speaks of slave ownership in favorable light. In fact, the Bible teaches the antithesis of that, of what our culture supposes that it teaches, that slaves had rights and that they were to be treated favorably as brothers and sisters. The fact that the parable here was that slaves had no permanent place in a household. That's what he says. The slave, the servant, abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. Jesus adds here a theological edge, I think, to his parable, which he often does. It's a mixture of practical insight and spiritual truth mixed together. And so what he does is he kind of tips his hat a little bit to what he's trying to communicate by talking about the idea of abiding forever. That's very interesting language to use when he's talking about slaves and people because people don't last forever. But he's trying to give them an indication of what he's actually talking about here. The assumption is that 
it was not that one lived forever and the other didn't, but rather one lived forever in the household and one didn't. This here word household is the word oikos. It's not the yogurt that we can enjoy. Oikos means household. Often can refer to a house, but oftentimes to a household. Speaking of the people. Jesus says here, the slave doesn't stick around forever, but the son does. In culmination of this parable, Jesus concludes by rephrasing it with more clarity. And I believe he brings clarity to the scripture I brought into question just a few moments ago, verse 32. When he says the truth, you'll know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Jesus says, if the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. What I think Jesus is trying to communicate in this is not if I mentioned verse 32, it's not a, uh, a practical guide to how, how to build a country. Although if a country is founded on God's word, there will most likely be freedoms. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to us here in you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, he's illuminating us in verse 36 and rephrasing in a different way. He says, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Here Jesus connects the Son and truth together. Jesus connects himself as the son to the truth that one must know to be free in verse 32. Jesus will be, say it a little bit more bluntly later on in the book of John. In John 14, 6, when Jesus says, Unto him I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. See, according to Jesus and the word of God, what truth you believe matters because it selects your eternal destiny. If you are to reject the truth of Jesus, you would be rejecting your only hope to eternal life. According to Jesus, there's only one truth, one way, one life, and it's himself. The Bible makes it clear that every person will live forever, some with God in heaven and some apart from God in hell. But listen to this stark warning Jesus gives in another gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Verses 21, Jesus says, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have we, cast out have, we, have we cast out devils? In thy name have we done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, it isn't just saying Lord or talking about the Lord or doing good works for the Lord. That's not enough. It's about knowing the Lord and continuing as his disciple. That's what Jesus says in verse 31. Jesus says, I never knew you. You see, if you're going to have a relationship with Jesus, he needs to know you and you need to know him. I think one of the worst things you and I can do is to reassure us ourselves that we're good with God when we don't walk with God. And I try to be careful with that, and if you're 
ever had the opportunity to go out with us on, on outreach or you've done outreach yourself or you have conversations with people, I think one of the most dangerous things you can do is to try to reassure somebody of their relationship with Jesus when they don't walk with Jesus. Because there's indications. Jesus used the word fruit. By their fruits he shall know them. There's a practical aspect to living for God and being his disciple. I heard this statement recently uh, by a teacher. I thought it was very powerful. He said this, we don't trust what we don't know. I think that's oftentimes the case with Christ. Most people aren't going to trust Christ if they don't know Christ. It seems like a, kind of a very obvious kind of thing. But Jesus here is trying to communicate to these, these Jews who believed on him, which is why I call into question their faith in, in the beginning. But he's trying to communicate to them they aren't as free as they think they are. And if they're going to be his disciple, they need to be abiding. They need to be living in, making their own his words, his commandments, his truths. And if they are to know him, if they are to experience him, then they will really be his disciple. Let me ask you a question as we are kind of coming to an end here. You may have been coming to, to church or some kind of religious service uh, for a long time. Oftentimes when we, uh, uh, every church ministry I've been involved in, Wednesday usually tends to be the core of people, some of the more, more faithful, uh, some of the more engaged and involved people in church. But not always. Which is why I ask this question. Do you know Jesus? Not just know about Jesus, but do you know him? Are you experiencing him on a daily basis? I think it's important for you, for any person. But I think it's also essential as we look at knowing Jesus and experiencing Jesus, I think it's also essential for the next generations to come. Because there's a danger. And the danger is this. This isn't original with me. The danger in walking with Jesus is that many times a generation knows Jesus and they experience him. But oftentimes in the raising of the next generation, they fail to pass on what it means to experience Jesus. And so they pass along the facts. They teach the Bible stories. They make sure that they uh, memorize the Bibles. And we have Awana in the back for kids. And they make sure that they, they come and they, they get the patches and that kind of stuff. And they know about Jesus. But they fail as a generation to pass on what it means to experience Jesus in their day-to-day -day walk, in their day-to-day -day life. And so the next generation grows up knowing about God, knowing about Jesus, but never truly experiencing him on a personal level. And then that generation goes on, and they raise a generation of kids who neither know Jesus nor experience Jesus. 
Which is why I tried to point to you tonight a reality. And why I ask you the question, do you know Jesus? Not just know about him. Not just know the facts and the figures. and You can pass a Bible exam if we were to give one, which we don't. But do you know him on a personal level? Are you experiencing God on a personal level? What I think is amazing is that we serve a God who wants to be real in our life. Who has painstakingly preserved his word perfectly in this book and who wants and who is active in his Holy Spirit in trying to communicate and commune with you through his word. Jesus says you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. I love the fact that we can know the truth and the truth is in this book. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, and I'll close with this scripture. The same guy who wrote our passage tonight writes later on uh, an epistle to a church. And he writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, these words. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. What you believe, the truth that you believe, matters. It matters because of how it directs your life. It matters because of how it informs your thoughts. And it matters because it selects your eternal destiny. So if anyone is to ask you, does it really matter what truth I believe? It matters Would you bow your heads with me?